Wood Mackenzie's Solar and Energy Storage Summit is back, and in person. After two years running our events virtually, we're off to the stunning waterfront oasis of Coronado, California, from June 6th to June 9th. This year's event will feature a day on solar, a day on solar plus storage, and a day on storage. We'll also be broadcasting live from the event, right here on the Interchange. I'll be bringing you all the highlights from each day of the conference across three very special podcast episodes. I'll be joining Wood McKenzie's experts and leading grid-scale utilities, commercial and industrial developers, and state and federal policymakers for in-depth discussions and behind-the-scenes content. So join us, either in person or on the interchange recharged. Visit woodmac.com backslash events to find out more. I'm David Banmiller, and this is The Interchange Recharge. It's been six months since Shale Khan handed over the show, and in that time, it feels like I've studied every cog in the energy transition machine. We've looked at new technologies in solar storage, carbon capture, hydrogen, EVs, the power of community solar, geothermal, and sustainable rocket fuel. I've been taken on a journey of discovery by some incredible guests, all of whom are at the top of their game and truly passionate about their work and its place in the energy transition. Throughout my career, I've been exposed to most sectors in the energy industry and seen inside the various parts that make it all work. But in these last few months of doing the show, I've gone to some truly extraordinary places, some that feel like a glimpse into the future. It's been an honor and a privilege, and so this week, I wanna look back at some of the best moments from six months of shows. I think it's been an educational experience for all of us, and I look forward to the discussions that future episodes will bring. In episode 218, I was joined by Harold Overholm from Alight. Alight is the leading solar power PPA provider in the Nordics. The company builds, owns, and operates solar projects, both on-site and off-site. In this clip, Harold explains how solar, particularly in Northern Europe, can stay competitive with other renewables such as wind. Yeah, I'm, I'm very biased here, <laughs> but, but I do see solar being uh, significantly larger than wind over time. And it's, it's not uh, on the behalf of any negative aspect of wind. It's just simply that solar has this fundamental ability to be modular. It's like it's, it, you can build it uh, on a small rooftop, you can build it across a desert and everything in between. So it just has this ability to adapt to every situation. I think that's just the simple reason why solar is going to be deployed at a, at a higher clip than wind which is which is great i mean wind is great it's going to be uh, deployed uh, heavily as well but it's just a little bit more restricted in terms of finding the right place to do it but i think the other big um, aspect of the energy transition that's going to be critical to how we look back at, at the energy transition and what it meant is there's this overlapping or intersecting uh, of several technologies that's now happening and and when that has happened in other areas, uh, just think of smartphones or whatever, it, it has had this massively disruptive effect where it's not just one technology that, that reaches a certain level of maturity, it's, it's several. And I think for solar, especially solar behind the meter or local solar, uh, this is now true of the intersection between solar and, and battery storage and intelligence um, and, and, and to some extent general Internet of Things, uh, the, you know, the, the, the ability of, of all kinds of energy using hardware to start communicating so this might not be uh the defining it, it might not define the energy transition next year but i think if we look back at it 10 years from now this is really the defining thing where the local grids become so intelligent so that you you have this intermittent power source like solar but then you have 
battery storage of various kinds, and then you have a strong intelligence that that just uh, that, that just um, drives the dispatch and 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 um, the management of this. And that intelligence probably links into all kinds of other energy consuming assets that have some ability to act as a as a as a battery themselves. So, you know, can there's a certain variability to when you have to run the freezer at full uh, speed or when you have to charge the EV or whatever. And just get that intelligence together. Uh, suddenly, you have the nucleus of something that's that is the new grid. It's it's the truly decentralized uh, grid, and, and it's it's not going to happen without intelligence. It just doesn't make sense. But once you have the intelligence there, it's I think that's very disruptive for the for the grid as a whole, for the larger grid, and that is the energy transition. Where do you see that intelligence now? I mean, do you think it's progressing nicely? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like definitely people are building companies around that. I mean, you're on the stock market now, you have uh, STEM in the US and Fluence, uh, both did recent IPOs. And I mean, there are two companies invested heavily in, in artificial intelligence uh, on the intersection between storage and, and intermittent power production. So people are doing <laughs> doing their job. People are creating companies around this. As with any disruption, it's going to happen in leaps and bursts it's not a it's not a smooth uh, development suddenly something is going to just break through and everyone uses a particular uh, application and and it just uh, things change rapidly um yeah no i i we're, we're just bracing for that to happen um while at the same time and i think it's important for, for us to to realize and in, in where we are we're selling behind the meter solar to commercial customers in europe uh, this is not a bottleneck to us today. So our customers really just want to buy solar. They want to save money with solar. Like they're actually not asking for intelligence or storage. They're not really particularly willing to pay for it. They think it's interesting. They like to talk about it and kind of understanding the trend. But it is not something today that's that's holding the market back. So at the same time, we can we can look at the CNI, the commercial and industrial PPA market in, in California, for example, and, and talk to people there. And it's obvious that it has already uh, switched. Uh, they're selling much more than just solar power savings. They're actually sell- selling intelligence and, and, and resiliency of the site. And the solar plus storage is becoming almost a backup solution to the site. So, yeah, it's like the old saying that the future is already here. It's it's just very uh, unevenly distributed, as usual. It's in California. It's not in the rest of <laughs> the world. Where do you see a light in the future, where where do you see the company going? Where where would you like to see it expand? You know, let's say 15, 20 years down the road. Give me kind of an idea of what a light is. We're squarely focused on being the number one leader of solar power for commercial and industrial companies uh, in Europe to start with. I mean, I can see us being you know having a global ambition over time. Of course, if you if you really draw out the lines, but in the foreseeable future, it's Europe. It's a, it's a massive market in its own right. So. I'd like any commercial and industrial customer who start thinking about solar power, I'd, I'd like for them to, you know, I'd like this to first name that just comes across the, the, the radar screen. It's like if you're looking at, you're looking at buying a database, you start by thinking about Oracle and then you, and then you figure out who the competition is. And, and I'd like for any company thinking about solar power to just go like, okay, Alight has done a fantastic job in this. You know, I'd like to talk to them and then let's see who else is, is out there. Um, because that would mean that we truly lead the market, that we truly build the market, that we truly created something strongly commercial out of solar. Um, and it's such a deep market, right? Because it's not the market for solar, it's a market for power. And the power market is, is probably the deepest uh, commodity market in, in the world. Um, it's a, whatever it is, $3 trillion market globally, and, and not, a, not a small chunk of that sits in, in Europe. Um, 
So probably, you know, we could just stay. <laughs> it's such a depth in the market that just staying in that, really building that entrenched position and using using all the enhancements that will come to solar, like the storage and intelligence, to, to make it constantly a better product, like a truly great product for commercial users, is enough. It is enough of a challenge to keep a company busy forever, I would think, at least for the next couple of decades. So, um, yeah, that is my simple simple vision for, for Alight uh, and, and where we're going. Community solar was a relatively new concept to me. 75% of American households do not have access to solar power because they don't own their own home or live in apartments which are unable to host a system. The solution to the problem is community solar. You subscribe to the project, which is usually an off-site facility, in exchange for discounts on your electricity bill. Joining me on episode 222 of the podcast were Jeff Kramer from the Coalition for Community Solar Access, Casey Peters from Pivot Energy, and Rachel Goldstein, Solar Research Analyst at Wood Mackenzie. In this next clip, they discuss what community solar could look like in a decade and how the entire thing works. So community solar has been around for over a decade now. Uh, it was an outgrowth of uh, rooftop solar. And in the 2000s, there was a significant uptick in the growth of rooftop and CNI solar, where customers would put solar on their roof and receive credits on their electricity bill for the electricity generated from their roofs or from those buildings. And community solar presented an option for the largely a majority of residential customers, businesses, other public institutions that couldn't access solar, whether they didn't own their home, they rented, they didn't have a suitable roof, uh, or other factors. So it's actually started with small co-ops in the West where customers banded together and said, hey, we want to put together a facility ourselves and generate electricity and then receive the benefits on our electricity bills. So it started largely as a pilot in, in a number of rural co-ops by customers themselves and then grew into statewide programs in Minnesota and Colorado uh, starting in 2010 to 2012 and 2013 uh, where the state passed legislation to create programs where third parties or developers, uh, solar companies could come build projects and then offer subscriptions to customers, whether they be residential customers, uh, CNI customers, a university, a town, say all participating in the same project. And so the project exists adjacent to the community somewhere on the distribution system. It generates electricity that flows into the distribution system. And then each customer that subscribes to that project receives credits on their electricity bill for their portion of the project. And so, you know, to skip over a, a lot of detail here the, at, at a high level, community solar has moved from smaller projects, utility by utility, or either community by community to statewide and over 20 states across the country. And you have programs where it's as easy as signing up for a Netflix subscription. The first projects were complicated. Financiers weren't as comfortable with the, uh, with the concept. And so customers would have to take out $10,000, $20,000 loans and buy portions of those projects. Now, it's as simple as going on Netflix and buying a subscription and receiving your electricity credits either on your electricity bill or through a third-party provider. So it's it's seen incredible growth and incredible innovation uh, over the past decade or so. 
The process of development typically starts as soon as we have a bill passed. Um, there's a lot that happens in the regulatory piece, and that regulatory piece can make or break projects. We're seeing that in Virginia right now, where the regulatory process is deciding what the minimum bill credit is going to be for residents. Um, and so that is going to really shift the economics of a project. It's also going to shift um, what that offtake is going to look like. So really, when a project first gets started or when a program first gets started, the thing we know is, hey, community solar is going to be available in the next two years, and we're going to figure out what it looks like from there. And then every developer and their mother goes and talks to every farmer and their mother um, to find land. And so everyone is grabbing land and starting some of those early interconnection studies. Um, from there, some of the really sophisticated community solar developers, as well as CCSA, will work together on that regulatory process to make sure that all of this work that everyone is doing on the ground isn't for naught. And so a uh, huge shout out to Jeff and his team for being able to, to fight those regulatory pieces you know, really hand-to-hand -hand on the ground. So we're developing those projects really, again, as early as the program is available um, or for more sophisticated or mature programs, really just as soon as we know that we feel like the land is available. Our old um, VP of development used to say that land is the tail that wags the dog. So it's really land because we understand that if you build it, they will come. Uh, looking nationally, there are statistics that say that even in the most penetrated community solar markets, we've only hit about 6% of the addressable market. And so we know that there will be subscribers to make these projects work. And I think this also creates a shift from the traditional commercial solar projects. So commercial solar projects, you have to identify what that off-taker is. You have to say, we have to look at those financials and the equipment is going to be on site. And so it's really important to make sure that that building owner is going to be there for 20 or 30 years. For community solar, the shift becomes less about the eventual off-takers, in this case, the subscribers. And it becomes more on the people who are managing those subscriptions. So Pivot Energy has a service called Sun Central, which is our community solar management platform in which we are recruiting subscribers, we are managing subscribers, we are collecting bill payments, we're answering questions, doing all those pieces. Um, and we do those for ourselves, but we also do it for others. And it's Really, the financiers are digging in to figure out, is Sun Central able to find those subscribers when someone eventually drops out? Either they move out of their service territory, they don't like their subscription anymore, or they don't exist anymore. Um, so it's finding out, is there a service provider? Is there a product that makes sense in the market? Um, and... To, to the finance community's credit, they've really come a long way, whereas they used to try to say, great, I need you to have a credit worthy anchor to be able to make this project work. Now we're seeing 100% residential projects. We're seeing 100% LMI projects. We're seeing a mix of commercial and residential or sometimes all commercial projects. 
And we understand that there's enough subscribers out there to meet this demand as long as the bill credits work, which is why that hand-to-hand combat in the regulatory space is so necessary. But it's also what gives these developers so much confidence to be able to go out as soon as a bill passes and start talking to landowners um, without having an anchor tenant lined up yet. What can people do to kind of help further this? You know, I mean, if you were to look 10 years in the future, where do you see community solar and how can people get more involved, particularly given the fact that there's differences across state lines? That's a great question. Uh, The $64 million one. Um, I would say generally, I mean, for customers themselves, they can call their legislators and say, I want access to community solar and I don't have it uh, as that's the, the sort of first line of defense uh, is ensuring that there's policy in place. Uh, and and that that's that's sort of the, the beginning of the process. And I think more and more customers are doing that. If I were to look 10 years into the future, I, I would see an ecosystem within the distribution system that Thomas Edison would be very surprised uh, to, to see that all of a sudden that electricity outlet that goes one way where it sucks energy out is pushing energy back in, in most homes and throughout the distribution system. So the distribution system is fundamentally changed to where you have load management within the house, you have potentially storage on site or located within the distribution system that can be dispatched or whether it's the vehicle that's it's charging and sending back into the grid you have community solar projects that are providing access to solar and those benefits for the a large amount of customers that don't have access to those facilities now since you have a, a point of interconnection, you could probably put storage on the old projects or new projects going forward, all communicating up with a transmission system that now doesn't have to be overbuilt, right? We can build a transmission (laughs) system that isn't 10 times the size that's necessary for 2% of the year that it's needed. So it can be far more efficient, far cleaner, far more democratic, and community solar is going to play a key role as a central hub alongside other distributed technologies and products. I believe in Jeff's future. Let's go. Pretty exciting. <laughs> so, so Casey, what can we see, you know, over the next couple of years uh, for Pivot? Just so much growth. Um, we got acquired by ECP this past summer, and that's when we officially became an owner-operator of projects. And I'm really excited because Pivot is vertically integrated where we have our own community solar management platform. Um, and now that we have our own financing, we can actually determine what that project, what that product is for subscribers and what subscribers were going after and different uh, creativity within what we're offering to the market. Traditionally, it's been, we might suggest a product and then a financier says, yay or nay, this works for my, my returns or it doesn't, or this person is okay to be put in my project or not. But now that we have that ability to say, yes, we own this subscriber relationship and we also own the financing from this project, we can make community solar much more efficient. And Pivot is in a very, 
very prized position to be able to do that because we know so much about the subscriber relationship. We know so much about how to engage a subscriber or a, someone who's not a subscriber yet. And we're taking those risks on replacing those subscribers. So we can start to evaluate projects in a much more creative and dynamic way than the market had been doing before. So I'm really excited to see how we continue to evolve the community solar product, how we can we continue to evolve the community solar experience and how we continue to expand in states nationwide and continue the penetration within these states uh, that we are are have been seeing. I mentioned that Jeff and I started in a co-working space together when I was working at Pivot and he was just starting CCSA six years ago, something like that. Um, and at that point, Pivot wasn't even doing community solar. We were mostly focused on behind the meter projects. And the fact that we have really doubled down and gotten into community solar, know every aspect of the financing uh, and product and subscriber landscape has just changed our company fundamentally and allowed us to live our mission, which is providing solar and providing distributed resources to the grid to create the most benefit. That has been a changer. And I think it's going to change the industry altogether. Rachel, any final thoughts? Yes, I am thrilled that we're having these conversations. I came to Woodmax Solar Team because community solar needed an analyst. This so the sector is, is just growing rapidly. It's going to be playing an ever-increasing role in distributed generation. And there's a lot to be paying attention to, a lot of policy dynamics, and a lot of bills to be, to be following right now. I think there's a lot of promise in what we have going on in a number of states as these bills move through their legislatures. And I'm just very much looking forward to seeing how our forecasts are able to change and shift and grow as more programs come on the books. And I'm excited to see how that all plays out. I think it's definitely going to be important for us to address and figure out how to deal with these interconnection challenges that we've spent some time on, and also make sure that consumers, customers, and subscribers have the best experience possible. Those are the things that are going to be key to making sure that this sector is able to thrive and play the key role that we all are, are hoping that it will. Lots to be done. We're hoping to see DOE put some muscle behind uh, their goals as well. And I'm just hoping that as we watch the community solar market grow and expand in various states, that we can also see how the grid can also change with that and, and become more resilient uh, with all the upgrades that are developed as we, as we build out community solar. As we've spoken about many times on the show, every technological innovation has the potential to impact the energy transition in a big way. I spoke with Gavin McCormick from WattTime, a nonprofit that has developed software they call Automatic Emissions Reduction. It works with any smart device in your home and works to reduce emissions by ensuring you only use energy when the grid is powered by renewables. It's a great idea and puts the power to make a difference in everyone's hands. Gavin explains how it works. I uh, didn't understand until I was a grad student at Berkeley how much consumers affect the power grid and its use of renewable every day. So when you flip a light switch or plug in an electric vehicle or anytime you're using electricity, I hadn't really focused on this fact that there is a single power plant, the marginal unit, that is going to react by producing more energy. 
Uh, and if that power plant is a renewable power plant that otherwise would have wasted energy, uh, curtailed solar or something like that, that's very, very different than if a fossil fuel power plant is going to produce more energy to power your use. And so I thought it was just crazy when I first discovered that every time you use electricity as an individual consumer, you're actually directly affecting whether we use more fossil fuels or more renewable energy. But nobody knows that fact. As you say, like this is very mysterious to the average person. And when I found this out in grad school, I was really surprised and thought, why isn't it the case that, for example, a light switch would have a little indicator light right next to it? You, uh, if you use energy, are going to use clean energy or dirty energy. A lot of people care about that fact. And so what, what time what we try to do is we try to make it uh, known to the average consumer when you use energy, uh, is it clean or dirty? And it turns out that the answer changes at different times. So you can actually control whether you use clean or dirty energy just by when you use electricity. And how do you go about collecting that, that data and information? So uh, power grids, in order to balance supply and demand, need to have pretty detailed electricity market information openly available to the public. So we're out there scanning every five minutes the power grid uh, information that is designed to balance supply and demand. So for example, the ISO markets, we're looking at the locational marginal price of energy. And we're getting a sense from that, what's going on in a power grid right now? What are the real-time current conditions? And we're matching that up to the historical record of emissions that the EPA monitors. They call it the Continuous Emissions Monitoring System. And we're able to say, in grid conditions like are going on right now in your area, in the past, what we saw is when a little bit of electricity increased, these are the power plants that change their behavior. And in certain grid conditions, we see those are the conditions where a peaker plant will change their behavior, produce a lot more pollution. In other conditions, we see those are the conditions where a cleaner power plant will produce more. Uh, and so using more electricity doesn't actually cause pollution. And so what do you provide to the average consumer that allows them to make these decisions? So, you know, we started out with a text messaging service that would text you information like, hey, right now in your area, energy is really clean. And that was okay, but it was a big pain to uh, every five minutes be looking at whether you should be using electricity right now. So we quickly moved to automation through IoT devices. So now we work with smart thermostat companies, electric vehicle companies, any kind of device that uses electricity and has a Wi-Fi connection. And so instead of informing people whether now is a clean time to use electricity, we let people choose, what are your preferences for electricity? Do you like wind power? Do you like low carbon power? Do you like other goals? And we have their devices automatically shift their timing for them. So it's kind of a set it and forget it form of environmentalism. Basically, I think it's possible if you want to solve the problem with a blunt force instrument, we could just make fossil fuels so expensive that it would work. Uh, but why do something so difficult when there are simpler solutions available? So I originally trained as a behavioral economist. Um, and so I was spending a lot of time thinking about how do energy experts think ordinary people think about environment versus what do studies say how ordinary people actually think about environmental electricity? One of the biggest spreads I saw is that it's very common for energy experts to misunderstand a consumer's lack of interest in some new environmental instrument as being about cost when there's actually no evidence that if you ask those consumers or watch their behavior that it's really about cost. So it's very common, we, for example, see in demand response studies, that it's a hassle to participate. It's a pain, and you gotta, you got to remember your password, you got to sign up at some new program, you have to think about something, and that's what's actually holding someone back as opposed to the price. So yeah, with enough money, you can always make people be green. But why force them to be green if the actual problem is that you're making it a pain to do the right thing, and if you can make it simple, actually people want to? So we've been really interested in some studies that, for example... 90% of randomly selected Americans who we have sampled in, in any U.S. state say that they would be interested in using automated emissions reduction if it were free. 
90% is an interesting number because it's more than the number who say they believe in climate change. And what we have experienced is that the more you can make this absolutely painless, not telling people what to do, not raising price, but just saying, what do you want to do if it's your choice? The more you get really, really different behavior than if you approach it from purely financial terms. So again, I think cost could work, but I don't think it's necessary. So what's interesting about data is that often the pattern is that uh, experts in a certain area need to make it possible. And then uh, all of us as consumers need to say like, yeah, I choose that. And so I think we're going to see a new category of technologies uh, like smart thermostats that run AER that are just greener. And I think that, first of all, consumers should, should prioritize brands that do that. So just like there's an Energy Star lo logo um, saying, hey, I want that AER logo and I want a thermostat that does that is great. But the other thing is data is so cheap. I think consumers should set an expectation that unlike energy efficiency doesn't mean I'm willing to pay extra for it. I think that where this should be going is this should be the norm and it should be more like, why would you buy something that doesn't have the greenest technology available when it's that cheap, as opposed to uh, being in a situation where only the wealthy can, avoid, uh, can afford the cleaner technologies. And so I would love to see the average consumer starting to insist on technologies being as green as is reasonable as these things become more and more common. Back in October of last year, President Biden's Build Back Better bill was still on track. Seven months on, the plan is in pieces after opposition in Congress. There are still pieces to be salvaged, and when I spoke with Professor Gil Tall from UC Davis and Professor Peter Wells from Cardiff University in Wales, we looked at the EV component of the act, Biden's tax incentives for consumers to switch to EVs, and multi-billion dollar plan for infrastructure were green lights to mass adoption, but there were still barriers in the way. It was also very interesting to see the difference in mindsets between the U.S. and the U.K. Let's look back at what these were, and has anything changed? 2021, we've seen a lot of advancement in transport decarbonization. EV sales has more than tripled from you know, the first half of 2021 from 2020. And I think part of that, obviously, is lower car sales from, from the pandemic. But the market share, we actually saw double to about 7% EVs globally. Curious as to your thoughts on what is driving that adoption and the increased market share for the EVs globally. That's a great question because what driving it is change in policy. So what driving the EV market is not what I was thinking will happen that people will knock on the doors of the dealers and the car companies and will force them to make electric cars but people were actually knocking on the doors of their political representatives say, telling them, make them build electric cars for us. And 2021, uh, showing it, showing it in Europe, showing it in China uh, and other countries. Yeah, just to come in on that, I think uh, clearly regulation has been driving the, the shape of this market across the world, really, but also indirectly regulation is driving it. So we, we're seeing more and more people, more and more companies, governments stepping up with CO2 emissions requirements. And, and that's really taking hold across the market. So in the end, that means that consumers, be they retail consumers or corporate consumers, are buying into electric vehicles in part because they want to buy into a lower carbon agenda. So, you, so you're talking policy on 
driving the adoption of electric vehicles. Uh, What else do you think needs to be done here in the States? Because what we've seen is obviously from a global standpoint, you've got China and the EU really driving the growth with the United States coming in third. So seeing as now we've got the infrastructure bill passed, I think there's going to be continued focus on these types of legislations going forward. What else do you think on that front needs to be implemented to further drive that growth? As you said, we do need these incentives. It's very important. We need the infrastructure, and now we will have the money for the infrastructure. The third leg of this three-legged stool is, as we started with, regulation that will push the OEMs, the car companies, to make these cars. CO2 regulations, or better, gas mileage, cafe regulations, or as the state of California is doing, ZEV regulations, One of the three is necessary to uh, push the car companies to make these cars so everyone who wants to will be able to buy one. I think from a European perspective, what we see is a perhaps a broader portfolio of policy. You know, so we, we've got all sorts of things going on here which are not yet really catching hold in the US. For example, uh, zero emission or very low emission city zones, or um, not just looking at incentives for new car buyers, but looking at incentives for retrofit. You know, bearing in mind, you know, in the United States, when I last looked, they had a lot of old cars. And, and rather than just scrapping those cars, it may be worth thinking about, you know, what can we do to, to keep these things on the road? What can we do for people who cannot buy new? Uh, do you have to wait for the trickle down for all of the whole stock of cars in use to go electric? I think, uh, you know, the US could do a lot more across a broader spectrum of policies to, to really drive this this change in the industry. So it sounds like it's policy changes or further adoption of legislation to really drive not only the manufacturers, but the consumers as well. So you're kind of looking at a broad umbrella of policies to help drive it from, from both sides of the spectrum. In a sense, globally, I think we're already past that point in, in that now there's a scramble amongst the manufacturers to have a slice of this market. And that means that there's more and more product being made available across a wider spectrum of product segments, you know, from very small cars to the very large, across a whole range of different manufacturers. So now it's about getting it, getting a foothold into that race. And that's the problem that the United States currently faces. The, the whole industry across the US, notwithstanding the likes of Tesla, is behind the pace on a global scale. Where do you see the electric vehicle industry in 2035? What is maybe your big prediction that you see that's a big change from where we are today? So call it, you know, a little, little bit under 15 years from now. Yeah, what a, what a great question. Um, well, you know what, I, my, my former professor, he always used to say to me, you know, th- this industry is an industry dominated by scale and that, uh, you know, there'll always be a, a push to consolidation bigger and bigger companies and yet somehow over the years change has always happened underneath that has decimated that process of change i think that pattern will continue and i think that the the next phase is going to be a huge rush of new entrants from all over the place tiny little startups niche providers great big companies like foxcom uh, you know you you will see car, existing car companies spinning out new businesses themselves it's going to be a, a much more diverse dynamic landscape this idea of the kind of the big 3 that's going to go you know it's going to be a lot more exciting 
for consumers, a lot more interesting for consumers. Uh, for people working in this industry, it's going to be a lot more exciting and interesting too because there'll be huge engineering challenges. Um, and I think you know, at, at the end of all of this, we'll find perhaps a, a much better fit between cars and society than we have now. And, and that's got to be the big hope, you know, because at the moment, the fit's not great in all sorts of ways. Uh, cars deliver fantastic things, but they also deliver many problems. And, and it's, it's getting over that, I think, is, is the key. And I think it will happen. By 2035, we'll see a very different uh, automotive world. Yes, I, I absolutely agree. We will see a very different supply chain. And some of the car companies, some of the OEMs that are here today will not be part, part of the portfolio in 2035. I think some of the leggers will not will not survive. They will survive the next 10 years maybe, but then this transition will uh, will be fast and some of them will not survive, the new one will come. To add to this uh, startups and small companies, there are two main markets. One we already looking at all the time, it's on our radar and that's China. When most of the buyers who of their first car will be electric car. Their first car ever will be electric car. Uh, they're totally skipping the gasoline. But the even larger market that we didn't even start tapping to is India. And India will move to electric way, will totally skip the gasoline phase of, of car ownership. Uh, and that's, I think, what the largest change will happen in, in the 2030s. It's starting now slow, but the big jump will be in the 2030s. And we are talking about 1.4 billion people, more or less. Uh, and, and this is a huge market that will be only electric. They will totally skip the, the uh, gasoline phase. Uh, and that will change the supply chain. That will change the price of vehicles all over the world. Uh, and, and that's what one of the big changes I see for the next decade. Geothermal energy is a largely overlooked renewable. It's a hugely untapped, sustainable source of energy, but the technology required to utilize it is expensive and complicated. Carlos Araki, co-founder and CEO of Quaze Energy, has developed a method of accessing the tremendous amount of clean, untapped geothermal energy under our feet. The company has developed groundbreaking millimeter drilling technology in partnership with MIT to dig deeper, faster, and safer than ever before. This innovative technology will break down the many barriers currently inhibiting access to geothermal energy, location, outdated technology, infrastructure costs, and scalability. This was extremely fascinating to me as we can build on current businesses such as oil field service companies and infrastructure to tap into an existing and abundant renewable source. Let's have a listen back to how Carlos made it all happen. So Quay's Energy is born out of research at the MIT Plasma Science Fusion Center. It goes back to 2006 when MIT led a study sponsored by the Department of Energy looking at geothermal and the role it could play for clean energy and the energy transition. Ten years of work, very much laying out all the scientific basis for what would become Quay's, took place in those labs from 2007 to 2017. All of that was funded by the Department of Energy and, and internally by MIT. And in 2017, I, I came across the idea as an investor. I used to work for an investment fund from MIT, the engine. This was fascinating, you know, coming from oil and gas background. This was just, it checked all the boxes for impact and, and very, very hard to do. So, so it caught me and I, and I started the company with my co-founder, Matt Hood. The idea for the, for the company really is to unlock geothermal at the terawatt scale. I think that's the best way to put it, geothermal. 
hardly plays a role in today's energy transition pathways, but uh, geothermal is the most abundant clean energy source on Earth by far. It's, you know, the amount of thermal energy in the Earth is much greater than all of the fossil energy, all of the nuclear energy, and all of the renewables. So why are we not looking at, ge at geothermal, right? And the answer is that it's just hard. We need a technological breakthrough to drill deeper and to unlock this energy source. And that's what I call Quase. Quase is the company that seeks to unlock geothermal at the terawatt scale, which is precisely what the energy transition is about. It, it is a terawatt problem. And so what technology does Quase, what are they working on to help further the development of these geothermal projects? So geothermal today exists in places where it's easy to tap into that energy source with conventional technologies, right? A lot of these technologies come from oil and gas, technologies to drill uh, below the surface, technology to, to produce these fluids. We're borrowing all of that from oil and gas in the geothermal industry. But everybody realizes that if you could go deeper and hotter, uh, it just gets better and better and better. And it gets better for two reasons. The first one is it gets more powerful. So the economics improve potentially very significantly. And two, it becomes deployable in more places. You know, in theory, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. If you can drill deep enough, and we're talking about three to 12 miles, you have access to infinite energy. So Quase addresses that problem first and foremost. How do we drill deeper, faster, hotter than ever before possible? And the, the company, most of the people in the company are from the oil and gas industry. So we understand drilling quite well. Uh, we're not naive to the challenges of drilling and, and, and the challenges that it poses. And Quase basically comes up with a radical new way to drill in the basement. Geologically speaking, there's the sedimentary basins, which is above. That's where oil and gas is. That's where water, for the most part, our water and aquifers are. And then there's the basement, which is below the sedimentary overburden. The basement is where the high-grade geothermal is. So we need to get to the basement, and we need to drill in the basement to tap temperatures in the 300 to 500 degrees Celsius. That's about 600 to 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The big idea behind the technology is, number one, let's not reinvent oil and gas drilling. That's pretty mature technology, right? So let's use that to get to the basement. That's important. We're going to come with a normal conventional drilling rig, and we're going to drill all the way to the basement. Once you're in the basement, we're going to switch to millimeter wave drilling, and millimeter wave drilling is going to give us a way to drill for miles in the basement at rates that will make it economically viable. There's a few things that go on in the basement that don't go on in the subsurface, and that's why we can do millimeter wave drilling. So it's important to split that process into two steps because the physics are different, and it opens up a way to do millimeter wave drilling. Millimeter wave drilling, that's essentially lasers, correct? So lasers, it's, it's a form of electromagnetic drilling like lasers are. Lasers uh, have a particular wavelength range. Uh, so, so we're talking about uh, a wavelength in the neighborhood of a micron, uh, which is close to the visible light. You know, what we see and what we call light, it's, it's visible range, and that's in the one micron range. Millimeter waves are in the millimeter wave range, so a thousand times bigger wavelength. But in any other way, they're just electromagnetic waves. And the millimeter waves present us with a very unique opportunity to do things in a very interesting way. Let me use a few analogies. You know, everybody's probably familiar with lasers and fiber optics. You know, most Zoom calls 
and real-time communications in the world today happen because we humans invented fiber optics. We can transfer lasers over very long distances in a fiber, and that allows us to communicate. So now we're going to scale things up. Instead of a micron wavelength, we're going to use a millimeter wavelength. And instead of a fiber optic, we're going to use a waveguide. A waveguide is a cylindrical pipe that looks just like oil and gas pipe, and that's going to be the conduit for these waves. We're going to insert the waves in the hole, and we're going to burn the rock. We're going to evaporate the rock with one megawatt of power. Those vapors get carried away by gas, by gas that we inject. So, so why are we doing all of these? I mean, it's just to keep things simple in the hole. The, the biggest challenge with drilling deeper is that it's a very harsh environment. It's hot, there's high pressure, it's very hard rock. So we find a way, or the Plasma Science Fusion Center at MIT found a way to transfer a lot of energy over a very simple system that allows to keep the in-hole complexity to a minimum and basically get away with drilling and vaporizing these rocks in very, very deep holes. So, so that's the core idea behind millimeter wave drilling. But in many ways, it is like a laser transferring over a fiber optic, except that in this case, it's a millimeter wave transferring over a waveguide. And how proven is this technology? I know it's uh, you're working on it now, but uh, how far have you gotten? So I, I can say that the physics are well understood and proven in the lab at MIT. I think that's one of the primary roles that MIT had in the early stages of the technology. What does that mean? It means they've taken many, many rock types and they've experimented with those rocks with millimeter waves to drill holes through them. We understand the amount of energy that's required. We understand what the process looks like. We understand what that process, how that process scales as we go deeper. It, as a company, we've taken that out of the MIT lab and into a national lab. So now we're working with a 10 times more powerful millimeter wave source to make it go deeper, faster, but still in the lab. We're still not drilling in the ground. We will be drilling in the ground by the end of 2022, though, in the lab. So, so we've taken it out of the MIT lab into a national lab. And over the next three years, as we go into 2023 and 24, we start to take it into the field. So we're building systems that are field deployable and will allow us to drill in the ground under real geological and operational conditions. That means going out somewhere, not in a lab, and drilling a hole anywhere from 100 meters to 1,000 meters. You know, if you look at our website, we talk about 20 kilometers. That's the end goal. But there's plenty of business that opens up, even at the 100 to 1,000 meters range of holes. So that's where we start. Now, I've always loved aviation and space exploration. Who doesn't? My family has been in the aviation industry my entire life, and I'm somewhat of a space nerd enjoying books such as Brief History of Time written by Stephen Hawking. With an explosion in investment into space travel and a renewed public interest, the need to create a sustainable aviation fuel to power the missions is ever-increasing. I sat down with Derek Harris, CEO of aerospace fuel company Ecosine. Ecosine is aiming to solve a twofold problem for the energy transition, how to create a sustainable fuel, and how to utilize plastic waste in this fuel. Derek walks us through the science behind it and how it can be applied to the real world. Can they solve two environmental issues with one process? Let's look back and find out. So I think we need to look right back at the start, which for ourselves wasn't too long ago. It was only around five years coming up for six that Skyrora sort of came about. And the whole mission statement behind it to start was 
was to help supply orbital rides for small satellite vehicles. But what we looked at was what could we do that's not already been doing, being done by Rocket Lab or the US. And with the UK market being very young and up and coming, we, we saw the chance that we could take a look at to try and make our launches slightly greener than the old technology that was out there. And we pushed towards that. And that's allowed us to do some investment and to produce what the product, which is Ecosine, which is the fuel that we're using instead of kerosene. And it's a sustainable aviation fuel that it can be used as, but it's just for us the first stage to try and sort of make our vehicle that little bit greener uh, to help launch the satellites going up. So tell me, how does your fuel reduce the emissions? Because I mean, my understanding is that 120 rocket launches using the RP-1 kerosene fuel uh, currently being used by like SpaceX emits about the same equivalent of uh, carbon emissions as the aviation industry does an entire year. So what does this fuel do differently to help reduce that? Well, a large part of this is you need to take a look at the entire life cycle. So there, that was a great figure and stat that you've given out there about the sort of 160 launches versus the aviation market. What we're not taking into account there is the life cycle of for the product being taken out of the ground, being dealt with, going through all the refineries, being taken to the various airports or various launch pads. So for ourselves, the products that we were making this out of is plastics which have been made and normally go to incineration or landfill. So by giving them a second lease of life, it allows us to cut down on basically another sort of variation of having to pull these fuels out of the ground. So at the moment, we're already in a bit of a winner. Ones that would go to landfill would have a set amount of emissions. I can bring up those numbers in a few moments for you if you wish. And the ones that go to incineration obviously have a lot more CO2 as well when they're burned. So for us, we allow it to go through our three-stage process, which we have used some of the carbon from it as part of the system. It's going through the three steps. And then we also have carbon capture as part of the system as well to try and capture the remaining carbon that is being released. So that allows us to reduce that footprint there. But on the other side, when we go to use that fuel, because it's basically went through refinement again, it takes out a lot of the nasties from it. So we're finding the reduction in things like sulfur is quite a big jump from what it would be in your normal refined fuels that you're getting for RP1, for example. So for normal RP1, I believe it's something like 0.0001 milligram per kilo of fuel, whereas for ourselves it's 0.0007. So it, it is rapidly reduced and we're finding similar results with the carbon. We've just had our second set of lab data back, which is saying uh, the first set said it was about 45% cut on carbon monoxide and dioxide. Uh, the second one was a little bit less uh, and was showing between the 30 and 40%. And again, with this product being at TRL level five, we hope to see that settle around the 40% reduction mark. And where are you getting the plastics for the recycling? I mean, we, we produce something like 220 million tons of plastics a year. And a large percentage of that, I think it's around 40% or 90 million tons, is actually leaked into the environment. So where are you getting these plastics to be able to recycle in, in, under this method? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first place that we wanted to look at and where we started off our project is with our local authorities, what you may call your chambers of commerce in the States. 
In the UK, we have landfill taxes, which previous years have been around £120. So I think that's roughly around $150, give or take, per tonne. But that will go up to £200 this year again, maybe about $230, US dollars So we've been speaking with the local authorities about helping them be able to take these types of plastic in, which they normally never had any uses for. And then we can take them from them. So it allows us to make a profit of the for not having to buy these materials. And it also helps the local authorities become or work towards their net zero goals as well. And what process do you use for the recycling? I mean, I, I know that mechanical recycling is the premier recycling method, but it, it also is limited in terms of what types of materials can go into that. So walk us through a little bit about the process you guys employ. Yeah, well, I think at the very moment in time, the the number one thing we need to point out, there's only one plastic that we cannot use, which is PVC. Unfortunately, you use PVC, and for those that are better chemists out there than I am, it begins to produce noxious gas, which would take out the entire workforce. I also double up doing HR work, so I don't want to fill out that paperwork. So we make sure PVC does not get in there. But to be honest with you, most recycling is done by hand at the moment. We are talking to two or three groups in Scotland and universities who are looking at ways to make sensors that can sort of be placed on these conveyor belts, which will help us separate it automatically rather than by hand. But at this present moment in time, a large part of this is all done by hand. So when I'd done a recent visit to one of the local authorities, they were basically, when it was coming in, they had tins getting put down one pile, they had polystyrene going down another, PET going down another. Everything was very manual loaded, but we're looking at some of the universities to see how we can make that better and work hand in hand with our technology. And what about the process of breaking that down? Yeah, so the process of breaking it down is actually, it's one that has started off and been used before, or at least the first part of this is. So the first part is using pyrolysis, then going on to distillation, going through the sort of cooling systems, and then using a hydro treatment. So it's a large part of why we've been able to accomplish this is the catalyst that we're using, which is our secret sauce, if you'd like, in that regards, which is helping us to do this. So we've seen a lot of good work on the pyrolysis side so far with rubber and other plastics being used. We've just built upon this knowledge and sort of taking it a step further. And the pyrolysis uh, process breaks it down into the molecular components of, of oil and gas. Right, and that's what you're able to use for the, the rocket fuel, correct? That's correct. So th- that allows us to break it down into various components and fractions of different types of fuel types. So for every 1,000 kilograms or one ton of waste plastics, we get a usable 650 kilograms of usable fuels that come out of that. The rest of that weight, so which will be around 350 kilos, is made up of some of the gases which go back into the actual process. So the gases that are produced help to power the process to help keep it a sort so it's not using more power than it's actually generating. And then the rest of it is sort of like a coke or an ash, which over here is used quite a lot in sort of fertilizer is probably the best term for it. I was going to say manure, but fertilizer is probably the best term. And my understanding is this type of chemical process versus the mechanical recycling process is a lot more energy intensive, obviously more emitting than than the mechanical process. But you, you mentioned that you've got the carbon capture technology as well to help reduce that. But how will this 
kind of reduce the overall emissions? Because there are critics obviously out there that will say, well, we're, we're still relying on oil and gas, right? I mean, you're, you're taking waste, but it's still kind of a closed loop there to relying on oil and gas for, for this, which will ultimately burn and create emissions. Yeah. And, and they are correct in that way. But I think what they're needing to look at at the moment is we're giving a second life to these products. So while it is a sort of closed loop with that, these products would normally be left in landfill to disintegrate over thousands of years, go to incineration plants where the actual release of the emissions is much higher from it just being burnt for lower amounts of energy. If we're being honest at this moment in time, there are futures coming in. We're seeing leaps and steps at universities from the UK, from the US, Netherlands that I speak to quite regularly that are looking at cleaner and other ways that we can potentially have fuels in the forward in the future. But I think what we're doing just now is taking that step forward because there's no middle ground at the moment. We either have are full on dirty fuels or the, our hopes are basically being pinned on the future technologies. No one has decided to take this step in the middle to sort of bridge that gap as such. It's been a journey on the interchange recharge so far. I've learned more in the last six months than I ever hoped to as host of the show. And it's taken me to some really interesting places. Solar power purchase agreements in Norway, geothermal energy at MIT, sustainable rocket fuel in the UK, and other emerging technologies from all over the world. I can't wait for the next six months and beyond. So thanks for joining me so far, and I look forward to taking you on the next step of the journey with me. We'll be back in two weeks to take a deep look at the financing of the energy transition with Matthew Norton, partner at Azola Ventures. Bye for now.